and pass the baskets down that you passed uh, earlier. Uh, if this is your first time, just put the Connect card that you filled out in there. Don't feel um, under obligation or pressure to give any money. Keep it. Go to Paradise Donuts or to Waffle House after this. Have a good afternoon. But uh, you can put your offering in there if you are giving that this morning. Um, as I said, I'm Timothy Parker. Uh, I am the student pastor here. So if you've got a student in 6th grade through 12th grade, that's my wheelhouse. Um, yeah, you can woohoo yourselves or your kids, either one. Um, so I don't, I don't normally do this. Usually it's Steve or Scott. Um, in fact, in my job description, when I was hired here and came on staff, one of the things that I saw really as a privilege was being able to do this twice a year. And I don't know whether it's Steve, Steve's graciousness or what, but I've been here for about eight months, and this is my third time. So come on. And, yeah. You boop, Randall. Um, and next week will be my fourth time. So, I mean, hey, let's just let's just go with it. Um, let's just go ahead and jump right in. Um, we have a story in the Bible about a guy and his followers. He took 12 of his friends that were he had called out to be with him, to be in relationship with him. He was training them in, in his way. He was leading them. And, and one day he, he took them to a really rough part of town. It was called Caesarea Philippi. If you're a young Jewish kid, that's where your mom told you not to go. That was the place that, you know, when you went out with your friends, and I don't know what kids did in the first century, played with a rock or something, I'm not sure. Um, you don't play with a rock in Caesarea Philippi. That's just, that's what your mom says. And he takes them there. And actually this place that they were standing, they, they called it the Gates of Hades. It was a place where they would actually practice pagan sacrifices, sacrificing animals, doing all these rituals. I mean, it was just a sketchy place. And so when Jesus was like, we're going to Caesarea Philippi, so I was like, whoa, okay, let's, let's go ahead. Uh, and so he's standing there. They're standing on this ledge overlooking all this stuff. And he looks at his followers and goes, guys, who, who, who do people say that the Son of Man is? We're supposed to be expecting this, this person called the Son of Man. Who do people say that he is? And one of his followers pipes up and says, well, some say he's John the Baptist. Some say he's Jeremiah or a prophet. And then this guy says, well, who do people say that I am? And he, and he looks at one of his disciples and says, well, actually, Peter, who do, who do you say I am? And, and Peter just kind of blurts out, the Christ, the Messiah, our Savior, son of, son of the living God. And Jesus looks at his friend and said, you're You're right. You're correct, but you didn't come to this conclusion on your own. This isn't something that you just stumbled on in your own intelligence and insight. This was revealed to you by my Father who's in heaven. And, and on this rock of, my, of the reality of who I am, that I am the Messiah, the Son of the living God, sent to save my people from their sins, on this reality, on people like you, I will build my church. And, and get this. The gates of hell, Peter, will not overcome it. And so we fast forward to 30 years, and we have this guy named Paul, and he's sitting in prison. And he's writing a letter to uh, a church. This church that Jesus said he was going to build is still thriving 30 years later. And this guy, Paul, writes a letter to a church in a city called Ephesus. And, and, and in this letter, he ends a prayer for his people by saying, to God be glory in the church. So 30 years later, this guy's in prison for serving in the church, for planning churches, for pastoring churches. 
He's saying that in this church, God will be glorified. So between then, when Jesus said he would build his church, and 30 years later, when Paul is saying this this thing, the church, God will receive glory in it, the church was built. And from then to now, the church has been increasing. I'm not talking about church buildings. That's not what Jesus said he was going to build. Jesus said he was going to call people to himself in building the church. He was calling individuals to himself and assembling them in community. And he said, these people who are called by my name, who recognize that I am the son of the living God, their savior, the gates of hell will not overcome them. And somehow between then and now, I don't know, I think, I think we, we kind of get a little twisted on, on what, how we define the church, what the church is, what it looks like. Um, one, one of the greatest questions I've ever heard about how helping define the church, one of my, uh, a, sort of a mentor of mine, when they lead little kids and they're talking about the church, they say, well, if our building burned down, could we still have church? And the little kids kind of think about it and say, well, yeah, because they understand that the church isn't the building. You know, the church at Vintage 242 isn't this lovely storefront we have. It's the people who gather in it. So Jesus says he he gathers his people together. He works in an individual life. And then in these individual lives, he's transformed. He gathers them together. And that's his church. And and I don't know about y'all, but I hear things like the gates of, of hell will not prevail against it. And that God will be glorified in it. That it is the one sure place where we can find the glory of God. Um, and sometimes, at least in my experience, I get kind of discouraged. Um, I, sometimes when I think about my, my experience with church, I, it's more of not something the gates of hell don't overcome. This assembly of people working for God's purpose and God's will. But it, it kind of gets resigned to this like middle-class social club um, where we're content to, to kind of get together and sing our songs and pray our prayers and read our book and hear from our people. Um, and it becomes much less something that is working for God's will and God's purpose, giving God glory and bringing others in, displaying the love and glory and kindness and grace and mercy of Jesus, and much more about kind of just getting together and having a sing-along. Um, and I'm, I'm actually, one thing I'm tremendously thank, thankful for is, is Vintage 242. Um, because one thing I'm sure of is that is not what we are content to be. We are, we are not content to get together and just hang out. Sure, we, we are absolutely all for relationship. We're all for these transforming individuals being brought together. But that's not the end. The end is community transformation. And God transforms his community through transformed individuals gathered in the local church. And I think one of the greatest pictures I see of this, one of the greatest explanations, one of the things we can look for and see, well, this is what transformed individuals look like. And this is what it looks like when they gather together in their church is, is found in Ephesians uh, chapter 1, verse 15 through chapter 2, verse 10. And this, this is what Paul writes when he's in prison to the church he's pastored in Ephesus. It says, for this reason, because I've heard of your faith in the Lord and the love you have toward the saints, I do not cease to give thanks for you, the church, remembering in my prayers 
that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father in glory, may give you, members of the church, a spirit of wisdom and revelation and the knowledge of him, having the eyes of your hearts enlightened so that you, members of the church, may know what is the hope to which he has called you, members of the church. What are the riches of his glorious inheritance in the saints, the people of God? And what is his immeasurable greatness of his power towards us, the church who believe? According to the working of his great might that he worked in Christ when he raised him from the dead and seated him at right hand, at his right hand in the heavenly places, far above all rule and authority and power and dominion and above every name that is named, not only in this age, but in the age to come. And he put all things under his feet and gave him his head over the church, which is his body, the fullness of him who fills all in all. And you, individual member of his body, member of his church, and you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked. Following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind. And we were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. But God being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, has made us alive together with Christ. By grace you've been saved. And raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. So in the coming ages, he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace and kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. For by grace you have been saved through faith. And this isn't your own doing. It's the gift of God, not a result of works so that no one may boast for we are his workmanship. We, the church, we, individual members of his body are his workmanship created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. And so here's what we're going to do. We're going to look at this as what it looks like when God transforms the life of an individual And then when he gathers those individuals together and commissions them to go out into their community and be agents of change and transformation. So first, we're going to look at the individual. Because as as one man, Peter confessed Jesus Christ, and that's the rock that it's built on, the confession of faith, that that Jesus is my Savior. He is the Messiah. He is the one. He is the Son of God. In one person, then all these people are joined together. We're going to start with the individual and then move towards the gathered community. So this week we're going to be focusing on Ephesians 2, 1 through 10. And I think it's, I mean, I think overall what this passage says is that the members of the church, and when I say members, don't hear like, you signed a piece of paper and you're on a roll and like you come to meetings and stuff about business of the church. That's that's not this is firm commitment to a local body of believers towards a, the cause and the purpose of Christ in that area, which you join yourself to. OK, I just wanted to pause and say that um, the individual members of his church, which he works in their life. And I, I think it's safe to say that Ephesians 2, 10, 2, 1 through 10 says that the members of the church are those who have passed from death to life by the power of Jesus 
And so we're going to look at what it, what it looks like when Jesus takes his life and infuses it into someone and brings them out of the kingdom of darkness into the kingdom of life, moves them from a life of destruction to a life of purpose in his body and makes them a member of his church, of his people, of his bride. And so we're going to start in, by saying three things that, that the life of Jesus in his church exposes in us. One, it shows us our former life. Second, it shows us God's life for us. And then finally, it shows us God's life through us. And so Paul starts with, frankly, something that, that really is uncomfortable for me. Um, it's not fun to talk about. It's not something that, that's like on my top seven things that I want to talk to people about all the time. But it's something that's necessary to talk about. So we're going to start dark and end very light. So... Bear with me through this first part because I mean, it's tough. I mean, he says that we are dead. He says you, individual church, you, individual person, were dead. And I think about this and I'm like, okay, what, what do you mean I'm, I'm dead? I can't remember a, a point in, in my life from birth until now where I was dead. Um, what, what are you saying, Paul? And what he's saying is in the most meaningful, in the most important sense that we were dead. In terms of our ability to respond to, be alive to God's love, work, and will, we are dead. We are unresponsive. We're, I mean, sure, we're walking around, going to the grocery store, going to soccer practice, hanging out with friends, eating pizza at Johnny's, watching 17 episodes on the same show of Netflix, sitting on the couch with a bag of you're, you're doing your stuff. You're actually physically alive. But in the most meaningful sense, what Paul says is actual life, it shouldn't even be considered life. It should be considered death. So Paul says we're in this sort of living death. And we are unable to respond because of our sin and transgressions. And they are actually not only the cause of our death, but they're also the evidence of that death. So it's not just we, we have this thing going on where we made a bad choice and then that's what did it. Well, not only that, but there is this thing where we continually move in a lifestyle that's marked by little regard, little care, little response to Jesus. He's, he's, a, he's a byword. He's a second thought. He is not primary. He is not cared about. It, uh, what, what, whatever else it is, that was, that's what marks and shapes our lives. And we continue in this pattern because death controls us. It is the way, it's what we walk in. It, it's not just a... Mark at the end where our life ends in the future. It's something that has come forward from there and saturated and invaded us in a pattern of destruction, not just in our relationship with God, but in relation to ourselves and others. And Paul says that we were dead in them. And this is the way we walk. The, the imagery here is, is walking down a path and the path directs the way you'll go. You know, if you have a nature walk, nature trail, you know, you, you stay on the little concrete path. If it goes right, you go right. If it goes left, you go left. And you follow that path that you walk. You don't go tearing up the hill through the pine tree unless you're like really adventurous. I mean, some of y'all might do that. That's, you're supposed to stay on the concrete though. Um, and so he's saying you, you walk on this path and it is what sets your priorities and defines your life. Your life is defined by your agenda is set by things other than Jesus. And it is Jesus who gives life and gives life in its absolute highest measure. And if that is not the primary source of your life, you can't have life. We can't have life. 
And so we, he, Paul says not only were we walking on this path, he says we were following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work amongst the sons of disobedience. And immediately the first thing I think of is Genesis 3. The first thing I think of is our first parents, Adam and Eve, believing the lie of the serpent, choosing to serve him, choosing to buy into his propaganda, forsake God, their father, the one who created them, who gave them strength and breath and power and life, and eat the fruit. And he says that we are continuing in that outside of Christ. But before Christ, outside of Christ, that is the lineage we have. That Those are our parents. That's the tradition we continue in. That is the lifestyle that we inherit. And, and, and one thing I, I, I really commend Paul for as a pastor um, is the easy thing to do would have been like, yep, that, that reality is out there somewhere. And it's some people who you might or might not know. But he says, among whom we all once live. In the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of our body and mind. And we were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. He doesn't let his people think they're better than the the, the sons of disobedience. He doesn't let them say, oh, well, yeah, I mean, I I lived among them. I was there sort of next door to one. Or I met one at school one time. Yeah, I I knew people who were like, no, he says, no, you, you didn't know them. You were them. We all were them. There's none outside of this pattern of death. We're all guilty. We all fall in this umbrella of a lifestyle marked by living death. And this, I mean, it's hard to swallow. Because if it means all, then that means me. And if it means all, it means my wife. And if it means all, it means the students I pastor. If it means all, it means my friends and my family. And that's a tough one to swallow. I mean, I, I don't know about you, but I, I wrestle with that. It's difficult to think, but then I, I stop and I realize that what Paul is saying here is that our problem is not badness. Our problem isn't, okay, well, you made 10 really bad choices when I only allowed eight really bad choices. So you're in this, you're in this pattern of children of wrath, son of disobedience, inheriting the wrath of God. If you would have only made seven, you'd still be safe. Our problem isn't that we didn't make morally right choices. Our problem is that in the deepest part of who we were, there was no life. And from that, from that reality is where bad choices, negative thoughts, destructive relational patterns, that's where they emerge from. So pause. Let me. So it does no good to try to modify someone's behavior. It does no good to say, well, my friend here is making bad choices and, and doesn't love Jesus. So maybe if I get him to stop drinking, stop smoking, stop watching rated R movies and stop doing all this other stuff, they'll, they'll be good and they'll be okay. That's not what it says. Because even if you clean the outside of the cup, the inside is still filthy. Even if you whitewash the tomb, there's still death inside. And so Jesus is saying, we were all like this. It doesn't, it doesn't matter how morally upright in your community were. It doesn't matter who your family was. It doesn't matter if you think you have a clean record. We were all under this. We're all good. When, when you look at yourself, you're not exempt from this. And he paints a bleak picture. He says that we were, by nature, because of our sin and rebellion, children of God's wrath. And this isn't like we hear God's wrath and we think 
really angry, mad God in the sky with lightning bolts for people he doesn't like, just ready to stomp on somebody like a bug. That's not what Paul is saying. Paul is, is saying here when he says God's wrath, it's not impersonal anger or fits of rage. It is God's just displeasure and right reaction to sinful patterns that disregard him. Okay? So it's not some angry, petulant child in the sky being like, Meh, I want my way, I'm, you know, I'm a big bullet. No, it's not that. It is someone who, in his nature, is just. Not there's something out here where there's right and wrong, there's this ethical code that he has to do right by. He is the ethical code in and of himself. He is the one who sets the standard for life and righteousness. And because we disregard that, live apart from it, live without it, go places and run far from it, he has the right reaction of displeasure and wrath. And this is bleak. And, 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 and what's so bleak about it is it's not just that we don't understand our situation. It's that we embrace it. He says we, we walked in this way. Not we were dragged, kicking and screaming in this way. He said we walked in it. We lived according to the pleasures of our body and mind and life. And, and we call death life and we call the light dark. And, we, and, we, and what we say is, is good is actually evil. And it's not just that we serve other things. It's that we love and pursue other things. It's not just that we have been sort of like thrown into slavery. It's that we run after it apart from Jesus. But Paul, the point here, what Paul is doing is not primarily about how bad we are. It's not how bad off we are. It's not how hopeless our situation is. The point Paul is trying to make is God's unwillingness to leave us that way. He says, but God, being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead, even when we were running away, even when we were caring little for, had no regard for, even when we were that way, that's when he displayed his mercy to us. And this is God's life for us, He shows us the life he has in himself for us. And, and, and from this, it's, it's displayed in three ways. His action in Jesus for us. Okay, so God's life is, is his action through and in Jesus for us. And, and so when it says, but God being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us, this isn't God's response to something good in us. This isn't God looking at us and go, you know what? There's something there. I just, they've earned my mercy. They did a good job. Like even in their state, they're just cute. I like them. You know, you walk to the pound, you know, I want that one. It's kind of, it's scrappy, but it's cute, you know? No, this is who God is. It's not him reacting to us. It's us experiencing his nature. He doesn't show mercy. He is merciful. He, he doesn't adhere to some standard of love. He is loving and he lavishes that on us because it's who he is. And it shows us that he is active. Like he didn't, he, he's not some aloof guy sitting up in the clouds, just hanging out with angels, watching little fat babies play harps on clouds. You know, like, oh, I'm sitting in this, you know, on top of this mountain in this big golden palace. And, and, and I care, I don't know what those little people are doing. No, he's actively involved and he looks at this process by which we are saved and he's not yes he's not angry about it like he's not angry about our salvation we get this idea that that it's like we run into it to, to our house and he's like that angry dad who looks at us when we run in and realizes our shoes are caked with mud he's like, i'm gonna clean this up but you owe me 
I'm going to clean this up, but you're in my debt. I'm going to clean this up, but after I clean it up, I'm not happy with you and I don't forgive you. I'm going to clean this up, but I still hold this again. That's not what it is. One of the things that changed my life was this statement. God doesn't, God doesn't just love us. He likes us. Like, that's really simple, but it's powerful because I'm sure I've said, maybe you've said, I don't know, like, I love you, but I don't like you right now. And, and, the, and the thought behind that is there is an obligation that our relationship demands of me being present, me being here, me extending a certain amount of care to you. But the, but the extra part, I'm not going that far because I'm, I'm really kind of angry at you right now. So I love you. I'm, I'm, I'm committed to you, but I don't like you. There's no affection there. And what this, this picture this paints is a God who is not just merciful and kind. It's a God who is actively displaying his mercy and kindness out of the goodness of who he is to his people. And here's the thing. He didn't ask our permission. He didn't call a council of interested parties together and say, hey, what do y'all think? I'm going to be merciful. Y'all, are y'all good with that? Let's take a vote real quick. Okay, the eyes have it. I'm going to be merciful. Hey, guys, I, I've got this idea to be loving towards y'all. Would y'all, would y'all be cool with that? He, I mean, he just one way unilaterally displayed his love towards all of his creation in the person work of his son. And he says, this is who I am. This is what I'm like. Come to me. I'm your father. I'm rich in mercy and steadfast in love, forgiving sin, pardoning transgressors when they put their faith in me and put their trust in me, put their hope in me and abandon their former life and cling to the life that I'm showing them. And, and, and it's through Jesus that he does this. It's through Jesus. We see that he says he made us alive with Christ, together with Christ and raised us up and seated him, seated us with him in heavenly places in Christ Jesus. Because we have a problem and we talked about it. And it's not that we make bad decisions or in the wrong environment. The problem is that we have death residing in our hearts where life should be. And so this is really simple. But the solution for death is life. The solution for the problem of death is life. But our problem isn't just death. Our problem is that while we were dead in our transgressions, we, by those transgressions, incurred guilt. So we not only are dead, but are guilt, not dead, just dead in our transgressions, but are guilty of our sins and transgressions in such a way that we can't pay the debt. We can't clear our own name. And so God, out of his mercy and grace, out of his own heart, sends his son to die in our place for our sins and be resurrected for our life. And the great part about this is this isn't just something you, oh, I believe those facts. And so I'm kind of grandfathered into this church thing. No, what Paul says is that we were co-crucified and co-resurrected with Christ. Like, it's not something that you just get later on. It's something that we experience now, daily, in life. We experience the freedom of not guilty. We experience the freedom of Jesus' earned favor given as a gift to us in our lives as individuals. We get that now because where Jesus is, there we are also. We are hidden in him. The, the best story, the best picture I've ever gotten of this is um, in the Old Testament. There's a guy named Isaac. And he has two sons, one named Jacob and one named Esau. And funny thing is, Esau's really hairy. I'm talking about like a welcome mat on his back, Harry, like for real, Harry. And it, it comes time 
for Esau to inherit the blessing of his father Isaac. And this is a big deal in this culture. Like the father's blessing for the firstborn, huge deal. And so Jacob is like real sneaky. And his, he's, kind of his, he's kind of a mama's boy. So his mom and him kind of get together and they're like, okay, look, if you put this animal thing, skin on you with the fur on the outside, when he touches you, he'll be like, oh, that's hairy. It's got to be Esau. No one else I know on the planet is that hairy except for Esau. So he'll give you his blessing and you'll inherit that blessing, Jacob. So sure enough, Jacob takes, I don't even remember what kind of fur it is, throws it on over himself and comes in. And Isaac, he's old, so he can't really see. He's kind of blind. He's like, who is that? And, you know, Jacob and his best, it's, it's me, Esau. And he comes over and he grabs his arm. And sure enough, he feels the hair and pronounces a blessing on him because by reaching out and touching him, he felt that it was Esau. And that's the way it is with us. We are hidden inside Christ. We are united with him so much so that when the Father looks at us, he sees Jesus. When the Father looks at us, the blessing, honor, privilege, power, responsibility that are given to Jesus by the Father's blessing, we inherit also because we are not only co-crucified, we are co-resurrected, we are co-heirs with him. And this is through Jesus for us. Paul, one thing I like about Paul, like, say what you want to about theology being boring or the Bible being boring. Paul didn't think it was boring. I've, I've interrupted myself in speech before. I do this funny thing in staff meetings. Um, when I have an idea and somebody else is talking, I just go like this. And it's not because I want to say something then, it's so I don't forget later. So like I'll be saying something and I'll, I'll, I'll either cut myself off or somebody else will be talking and I'll just go. And Steve will say, what's up, Timothy? I'm, it's for later, I don't want to forget. And so I, and, and, and Steve thinks it's funny. I, I, it's, it's quirky, I guess. Um, but Paul gets so excited about what he's writing He cuts himself off. He's talking about this being made alive together with Christ. And he goes, by grace you've been saved. It's just this explosion of astonishment and excitement. Like so much so that it blows away any misconception that the Bible is boring and stuff about Jesus is irrelevant and gives us cold hearts. That's not what it's about. It's actually so incredible that Paul interrupts it in writing. Like I don't know, have you ever interrupted yourself in a letter? It's like, no, I went to third grade. I put a period there to start a new sentence. I know what to do. Like, I got grammar, I got punctuation, I don't just blurt out my thought. I mean, but Paul is so taken with this idea that he has to interrupt his own sentence in writing. And he says, by grace you've been saved. And grace is the ill-deserved, not undeserved. So there's a difference between undeserved and ill-deserved. Undeserved means you just don't deserve it. It, mean, it means that if, you, if there was something that could be had, you, just, you haven't done what it takes to get it. Ill-deserved means that it's given to you when you deserve something else. Something positive is given to you when you deserve something negative. So it's the ill-deserved loving commitment of God toward us. Grace, for some reason, unknown to us, but rooted in his nature, God gives himself to us. He attaches himself to us. He acts on our behalf. Though wrath should come, we have mercy and kindness and love and tenderness shown to us. This God, this is who God is. This is what he does. This is the kind of God he is. The initiative always lies with him, completely and only with him. And no human action could have saved us from this plight. But he did it from his own heart, by his own power, for his glory and our joy. And it's amazing, amazing, so amazing that this guy who's pastor churches and preached this sermon a thousand times gets so overwhelmed with excitement and astonishment that he... Interrupts himself on paper with a, I mean, I'm guessing quill. 
I don't know what they used in first century Jerusalem, but that's how excited he is. And he says that it's not just so that we can experience this grace. And walking around going, yeah, I got some grace today. I don't know about y'all. It's pretty sweet. I can tell you about it, but it's, you know, it's, it's so that in the coming ages, he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace and kindness toward us in Jesus. So here, here, here's an important thing for that. That means that you, your life, rainy, your life and your experience with Jesus could be the most clear depiction of God's grace and kindness that your neighbor will ever see. That means people in our community, when they view Vintage 242, that may be the clearest picture, the best evidence of the character of God that they will ever see. And it is the primary thing that displays who he is. And and it does so, so that not when we get together, we erupt in worship and praise. Like, we don't just sing songs because they're on the screen. We don't sing songs because we need entertainment. We don't sing songs because you need to get ready before somebody talks to you for 35 minutes. We sing songs because we're grateful. We sing songs because we're glad. We sing songs because we believe this. We believe that it was worse than we could have ever imagined, and we also believe that we are more loved than we ever dared to dream. And that's what this produces, the, the, the kindness and mercy of God towards individuals in his church causes people to see his character and glory. So don't hide it. Like, don't be ashamed of it. it. It's something to display. It's something to not only say, well, I have this. It's something to extend. And so not only is this God's life for us, it's God's life through us. And I think this, this primarily verses 8, 9, and 10 turn on two ideas, faith and action. He says, for by grace you have been saved through faith. And this is not your own doing. It is the gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one may boast For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works to do, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. And so this turns on faith and action. This turns on, and and when I say faith, I mean this is faith that gives us access, because it says by faith, excuse me, by grace, through faith. So faith is what gives us access to the grace. Faith is what lays hold of the grace. But it's not, he's not saying through this action, Through this good deed, you earn this grace. Or by doing something, by straining, by striving, by doing the right things, singing the right songs, praying the right prayers, being a member of the right church, leaving the right tip when you go to La Perea, whatever it is, not by that that you lay hold of grace. It is by more of a relationship and a commitment. That's 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 sort of the the, the thing that Paul is saying here by faith. Faith, is in, in terms of relationship, it is fully relying on a trustworthy God. It is saying that God is, has extended something to us and we put all our weight on it. I mean, Ronnie, how much of your weight do you have on that chair right now? All of it. 
You trust that it's not going to collapse under you right now? Ronnie is trusting that chair. We, we put all of our weight, we put all of our hope, all of our dream, all of our hope for purpose and, and desires for life, all of that, all of our hope for being saved from destruction and death. We lean all of that on the person and work of Jesus. We lean that on the kind, loving, merciful nature of God that we have had seen extended to us. And it's commitment in, in, in two ways. It's God's commitment to us by promising salvation through his son Jesus to all who would believe. And it's commitment on our behalf, on our part, by putting all of our trust and relying fully on Jesus' work on our behalf and God to uphold his end of the bargain. Simply put, Paul's point is that salvation is a gift from a trustworthy God who we believe. It's a, it's, it's a gift from a trustworthy God That we believe. But this isn't faith that we just say, oh, I I believe the right things or I I have access to this grace. It's faith that has a a current to it. It's faith that has movement. It's faith that propels and compels us to action. Paul says that we are new creations. He says we're his workmanship. you You could also say that we're God's new creation. And we have good works laid out in advance for us to do. And in this new creation, just like in Genesis, when Adam and Eve were created in God's image as his representation on earth. So as new creations, we are created in his image. As his representation on earth. And what is the image of God that has been clearly displayed to us? It is His son, Jesus, who humbled himself to becoming a man, living a Filthy life. Like you realize it wasn't clean in first century Jerusalem, right? Like you know how dirty his feet got walking around? Filthy. He he condescended so low as to identify with the ones he was coming to save. And so we see that we begin to embody that image. We begin to say, okay, as Jesus has reconciled us, we are ministers of reconciliation towards everyone in our house, everyone in our church, everyone in our neighborhood, everyone on my kids' softball team or gymnastics team or soccer team. That is my sphere to to be a minister of reconciliation and redemption, to show people the clear image of God's mercy and grace that has been shown to me and I want to show to others. And it says we are created for good works. Now, we, not to get confused with the earlier part where it says it's not by works that we're saved. Yeah, you're absolutely right. It's not by works that we're saved, but it is certainly for good works we are saved unto. Like, our, our faith isn't something we just come and plop down in a chair and go to our house and just hang out. This is something that compels us to do good. This is something that we can't help but display. We can't help to find ways to display. This is something that we can't help but say, hey, there are kids in Africa who don't have clean drinking water. Let's do something about that. There are people in our community who don't have food this weekend. Let's do something about that. Saying there are millions of girls, millions of people locked in sex trafficking. Let's do something about that. It causes us to have compassion and mercy on people we don't know. People that are far off because Jesus had compassion and mercy on us when we did not know him and we were far off. So we're created in the image of this God who came to seek and save those who are lost. And we are saved unto good works. And good works are indispensable to salvation. Not not as ground or as means, but as consequence and evidence, John Stott says. So it's not it's not. How we are saved, 
It's not the way we are saved. It's not what we do to become a member of the church, but it is certainly what we do when we are members of the church. And so we see now that, that God's life is displayed to us by exposing and freeing us from our former life. Is shown to us as God's life for us. And now is God's life through us. And now we have to do one of my favorite tests to do for sermons. It's called the so what test. Tom Tanner told me about that one. Is you, you, you get done, you hear it and you say so what. Well right now, I think a little bit we have, we have a little bit to, that could survive the so what test. But mostly we just understand this passage better. We understand Ephesians 2, 1 through 10. We understand what it means. We understand what Paul was saying. But as far as impacting our life, well, I don't know. So, so here, here's what I believe this says to us right now, Sunday morning at 12.20 at Vintage 242. I believe it says if you have been freed from your former life, you are being freed from your idols. And I, I, I phrase that intentionally. Um, So you've been freed, a once and for all occurrence of being taken out of the kingdom of darkness into the kingdom of light. That that occurred when you were united with Jesus by grace through faith. You were taken out of that. The way in which you once walked in sin and transgression, you were taken out of that. Now you walk in a way with good works prepared in advance for that. And that is genuine and it's real, but it's not complete. We haven't fully realized that in our day-to-day lives. And, and when I say idols, y'all probably kind of recoil from that a little bit. Like, yeah, right. That's primitive. I don't worship. I don't have any golden statues in my house. I didn't carve something out of wood and sacrifice a chicken to it this morning. You're crazy. Idols, idols are for people a thousand years ago in the Near East and Africa. Like, this, this, this isn't for us. Like, we are civilized people in Metro Atlanta and Ackworth. We don't, we don't have any problem with idolatry. <laughs> yes, we do. Because an idol is anything that occupies the, the place of supreme importance in our lives. It's the thing that defines who we are. It's the thing that when we have it, we feel like we're worth something. And when we don't have it, we throw ourselves off a bridge. It's the thing that we would lie to protect. And it's the thing we would embellish the truth to make it look better. It's the thing we would do anything to get and give anything to keep. It is the thing that occupies the supreme place of importance and worth in our hearts, in the center of our mind, will, and emotions. I think we have a couple that we're kind of susceptible to as people who live in kind of the Bible Belt area. They're sort of unique to us. And the first one is religion. Now, I didn't say gospel, Christianity, being a part of the church, life of God. I said religion. I said a system of rules that references God, but is really for us. It's really to exalt us over other people, give us a sense of superiority and self-righteousness. Not, not about loving Jesus, not about serving God. It's all about us. And, and there are two things that are worshipped, I think, in this. One is, is ourselves. It's really for us. It's really to give us a sense of security. It's really to provide us for a sense of necessary spirituality for us sort of to fit in where we are and and to satisfy the need for something of God in our life. But it's not really even about him. But I think there's another thing. I think it's particularly evident in places where sort of the gospel is known and there are lots of churches. I think it's we worship God. 
little g God. And the best explanation I've ever heard for little g God is the quote I'm about to read you. It says, let me introduce you to God. Note the lowercase g. You might want to lower your voice a little before we go in. He, he might be sleeping now. He's old, you know, and he doesn't much understand or like this newfangled modern world. His golden days, the one he talks about when you really get him going, were, were a long time ago before most of us were even born. That was back when people cared what he thought about things and considered him pretty important to their lives. Of course, that's all changed now, though. And God, poor fellow, just, he just never adjusted very well. Life's moved on and passed him by. Now he spends most of his time just hanging out in the garden out back. I'd go there sometimes to see him, and there we tarry, walking and talking softly and tenderly among the roses. Anyway, a lot of people still like him, it seems, or at least he manages to keep his poll numbers pretty high. And you'd be surprised how many people even drop by to visit him and ask him for things once in a while. But of course, that's all right with him. He's here to help. Thank goodness all that crankiness you've read about, sometimes in his old books, you know, having the earth swallow people up, raining down fire on cities, that sort of thing, all that seems to have faded in his old age. Now he's just a good-natured, low-maintenance friend who's really easy to talk to, especially since he almost never talks back. And when he does, it's usually to tell me through some slightly weird sign that what I want to do is regardless and, and all right by him. That really is the best kind of friend, isn't it? You know the best thing about him, though? He doesn't judge me, ever, for anything. Oh, sure, I know that deep down he wishes I'd be better, more loving, less selfish and all that, but he's realistic. He knows I'm human and nobody's perfect. And I'm totally sure he's fine with that. Besides, forgiving people is his job. It's what he does. After all, he's love, right? And I like to think of love as never judging, only forgiving. That's the God I know. And I wouldn't have him any other way. All right, hold on a second. Okay, we can go in now. Don't worry, we don't have to stay long, really. He's grateful for any time he can get. And that is, that is the God that, that is worshipped in the idol of religion. It's a God made in our image for our comfort and convenience to give us a sense of self-righteousness and spiritual fulfillment. It's a God who is not active, who has no intentions for us, who consults us before he ever makes a decision, and who always ends up on our side. He always ends up on our side. We're always morally justified for everything we do because God is on our side. Because actually, this is a God who doesn't have to pick sides. He, he listens to our vote. When we raise our hand for something, he jumps on our team. And this is what is worship in the idol of religion. It has nothing to do about loving, serving, obeying him. It has to do with our sense of fulfillment. Well, I think something else we worship is relationships. You know, that, that person, that guy, that girl, that man, that one, if they like me, if they think I'm attractive, if they find me appealing, if they want me and desire me, then I'm, I'm worthwhile. I live to be satisfied by that person's opinion and desire for me. If they love me, if they want to spend time with me, then I, I got it made. There, there's, there's nothing that can touch me. But when that changes, I fall to pieces. I disintegrate under that. Uh, another thing we worship, I think, is, is money and power. And now, don't get me wrong, money is awesome. It's a great gift. I mean, it can be used for incredible things and... I mean, it's nice to it's nice to have a have a paycheck. Um, but but the box with with the numbers on the right of your paycheck doesn't determine your worth or value. It doesn't determine what you are like or who you are as a man or woman, as a dad or a mom. That doesn't that doesn't determine who you are. It doesn't determine your validity. 
That, it, that doesn't determine your validity as a parent. That doesn't determine your validity as, as per, a person who bears the image of God in their life. It, it doesn't make you superior to someone either. Your, your, your higher income doesn't make you superior to those of lower income. And your lower income doesn't make you inferior to those of higher income. Sure, it's nice. It's a good gift, but it's not an ultimate thing. It's not something to bank everything we have on. And power, power is great. It's great to be able to influence people. I mean, one of the greatest things we can have for the kingdom of God is influence in our culture and community. It's the ability to influence things and navigate spheres of society to rest and center on Jesus. But when it becomes all about furthering you, increasing your power, increasing your sphere of influence, and you would do anything to protect that, you you would go behind anyone's back, you would go over anyone's head, you would sacrifice anything to climb the corporate life, then you have a problem. When when it's all about the amount of power influence you have over people, about people submitting to your authority much more than it is about you serving others, well then... We have a problem. I think, I think another thing is, and this is such a good gift, but I think, I think like if the peak, of, you know, if it, how high the peak of goodness is, you know, this is great. It also has tremendous potential to be horribly bad. And so this is a fantastic gift. I think one thing that we can slip in, into worshiping is our family. Meeting our husband or wife or kids or parents' expectations becomes the main factor and most important thing for us. If we feel in some way that we haven't performed up to our own expectations as a parent, as a wife, as a husband, as a son, as a daughter, as a brother or a sister, we feel like we just should, should end it all right now. We, we feel like I am not worth it. I am not a valid person. I have nothing to contribute here. I'm no one because this person, this member of my family isn't, isn't receiving what they should. I'm not receiving what I should from them. They're not, you know, they're, this isn't, this isn't the way it should work. And so we, Fall to pieces because this thing that we bank all of our hope and trust in, it turns out to be hollow. And it's a poor master. It's a poor master. And it always ends in slavery. Never ends in freedom. I'm telling you that right now. The thing that we worship, it's other than Jesus. It ends in slavery, not in freedom. It ends in us throwing up our arms saying, yes, I will serve this. And it, and it demands more than you can ever give. It demands you die for it, you sacrifice for it, and you give your all for it. And it never delivers on its promise. It never delivers on its promise of worth, of importance, of saving you from the situation you're in. But when we are rescued from our old way of life, we begin to love, serve, and worship Jesus as the person who occupies the central place of affection and worth in our heart and mind and life. And we find him displacing the idols that we do worship. Another thing, if we experience God's life for us, it means we are finding our identity and security in Jesus more and more. That means we recognize that Jesus is what defines us. Jesus is what tells us who we are. Not, not our past. Like, like I'm sure some of you, you, th- you, you think about your past and it makes your stomach hurt. You think about what you've done and you want to crawl out the back door right now. I, I mean, I'm, I'm with you. I, I mean, I'll stack it up with you. We can, we can go toe for toe. I got some, got some skeletons, you know what I'm saying? But here's the great thing is those have no claim on me. They have no claim on who I am because I'm hidden in Christ and his perfect sinless life is given to me. 
His perfect, obedient death is given to me. It's credited in my account. And His glorious, triumphal resurrection is mine as well. So I have no need to fear, no need to bank all my hope and security in something else. And I have no need to be fear being vulnerable. I have no need to have any fear whatsoever because He is for me and He has done something great. And we're confident in His kindness and love. I don't know about you, but sometimes I've done something I'm like, this is, this is the time God, 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 God doesn't invite me back. Like, this is the time he kicks me out of the house for good. This is the time I've gone too far. And what this has told us is though God, God surely opposes a life of destruction, a life of sin and transgression, he is constantly merciful and his love is unending. And we can trust it. We live in confidence that his love is always for us. That's a song we sing. On and on and on it goes. And it overwhelms and satisfies my soul. So we increasingly find our satisfaction and joy in our place in him and what he's done for us. And finally, experiencing God's life through us means we are being made into the image of God through Christ. I think this means two very important things for us. One, it means we become less and less offended by the brokenness of the people around us. We become less and less offended by people who sin differently than we do. The people at work who say words we don't, who go to places we might not, who are, we're not offended by that. We don't write them off as sinning differently so they are worse off or more guilty than we are. We say, I, I get it. I went through the same thing. You look at people in your small group. I'm, I'm sure y'all have all had the, the, the experience in your small group of not wanting to actually bear what's going on because you know nobody else struggles with what you do. Like you know you're the only one struggling with this problem or that problem or, or, or whatever it is. But here's a secret. We are. I, I think we as individuals redeemed by his love are what I, are what I call a safe place to throw up. Here, here's what I mean by that. I don't, I don't, I'm sorry if this is gross for anybody, but I'm just going to be explicit here. Uh, when, I, when I feel like something's coming up, all I want to do is be somewhere where I can shut the door and be alone. Nobody's going to hear me. Nobody's going to see me bent over, puking my guts out. So I want a safe place that's quiet and secure for me to do something that's completely, I mean, stuff comes up when it should go down. I mean, that's weird, right? I don't want anybody to see me like that. But that's what we should be. We should be a safe place for people to come and say, here's what's going on. And more than that, this shows us that we should expect people to be in broken. This should be a safe place to be broken. This should be sin safe. Not sin condoning or sin tolerant, but sin safe. It's safe to bring all our junk. We don't have to leave it in the parking lot, put on a church face when we come in here. You don't have to do that when somebody comes over to your house for a small group. We have the freedom because of God's power on our behalf to be broken. And finally, we become more and more aware of God's mission. We become more and more aware that God is on a mission to seek and save those who are lost. We become aware that our primary objective in our day-to-day life is to be Christians where we are. And by that, I don't mean I listen to a Christian radio station and I got a Christian car and I go to a Christian coffee shop. I got Christian books and Christian shirts and Christian this and that. It means that we live lives that are centered on the goodness and glory of God that invite other people in. We invite them in to taste and see that he's good. 
Not to shame and condemn, but to taste and see. And so that's where we live. When you go to work, there's no, like, I don't know if y'all, I mean, Steve says this a lot, but sometimes we don't get it. There, there's, there's not a line outside our door that is the, the, secret, the sacred secular line. Like, one side is spiritual, one side is not spiritual. Like, you, like you know the job you do is as spiritual as the songs you sing here? Like, the way you raise your kids, the way you are to your wife, I mean, that's, that's, that's as, as much worship as coming up for ministry time and taking communion. Because we've been united with him, and if we're part of his body, whatever we do, in a sense, Jesus is doing. So we're all doing it to bring people into the knowledge of his unending, inexhaustible kindness and goodness. And so here's the deal. Ministry teams are going to come up. We're going to have a time of ministry, and you can come get prayer for anything you'd like. Whatever you're going through, whatever you want prayer for, you can come and get it. We have communion over here to remember the way that Jesus brought us in as individuals to his church, as members of his church, his broken body and his shed blood in communion. You're welcome to take that. But here's the thing. If you need Jesus to help you be freed from the former life and the idols, you, the things that occupy central place in your heart and life, please come forward for prayer. If you need to experience God's life for you, because your identity and your security are mainly in other things, not in Jesus, please come forward. And if you want to experience God's life for you, by, me, by overwhelming love for all those, there's a song we sing, are poor and powerless, all those who are weak and lonely. If you want the love of Christ to enter your heart, so you actually have affection for them, not just obligation to them, please come forward. And if you want to become more aware, more empowered, the Holy Spirit breathing on every part of your life, not just, not just here, but every part, please come forward. I'm going to pray for us, and then um, you're free to go if you need to. If you need to pick up your kids, you're more than welcome to leave. We love you, bless you. Um, but please, if, if you need prayer, if you sense that you need prayer, even here, here, here's the deal. If you're still living in a life of sin and transgression, just come up, come up and get out of it, okay? It's a deal. So so let's pray. Jesus, we love you. We thank you that you're building your church. We thank you that a promise you made 2,000 years ago is still seeing its fulfillment, even here in Vintage 242. We thank you that you are drawing individuals to yourself, knitting them together in community, and sending them out in the world. We pray that even this morning you would take another step in everyone's life here. They would experience your mercy and the riches of your love and kindness. I pray that you would accomplish what you desire to do. We love you, Jesus. Amen.